want to welcome everybody back to the assembly this evening. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're grateful that you're here, whether it's uh, you've been here several times or it's your first time. We're grateful you're here and we hope that you feel at home. Um, this evening, we're going to finish up our thoughts for the week on the marriage. We have talked about God's original design whenever he gave the institution of marriage. We've started each one of these studies off with Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, where God looks down at mankind and he saw that he was lonely, he was in need of a companion, and we see that the very first intent that God had in creating the institution of marriage was to fill the needs in man's life and to be a blessing. He didn't create it to be something that was, uh, that was burdensome. He didn't create it to be something that was miserable, miserable to be in. He created it to be something that was a blessing for mankind. And we know and we've talked about how whenever we follow God's design for our marriage, for our homes, uh, we're going to receive those blessings. We're going to be blessed for it. It's going to be a much more enjoyable environment and things will go well with us. I don't care what it is as we are, uh, as God's children, as Christians, if there's anything that we do in our life, um, we know that we have to have God behind it. Psalms 127 talks about, lest the Lord build the house, they labor in vain, which do, which do build it. Um, when we talk about the different elements that we have to have present in our home, the ideas of leaving and cleaving and becoming one flesh, the ideas uh, about the leadership and the submission inside of the home, uh, these are all the things that we're supposed to do, the roles that we're called to fill. And tonight, I want to talk about the thing that will allow us to do those effectively. And hopefully there'll be some practical pieces in this. I want to talk about love in the home uh, today, love in the marriage. We're going to go through 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I know that you've probably read through this chapter many times, heard it many times. I'm going to try to talk specifically about ways that it can impact us inside of our marriage and help us to have this blessing inside of our homes that God originally created marriage to be. 1 Corinthians 13 is where we'll start, starting at verse 1. He said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, and I have all knowledge and though I have all faith, so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. You know what I believe? I believe that there's not, man, I don't know if there's any marriage where two people come together and there's not a lot of ability and talent present. I mean, each person brings something unique and good to that relationship. And you could spend your lifetime using all of these good gifts that you have as an individual. But if you don't bring love into the equation, I don't know if it'll be the success God intended it to be. You might find success in a worldly sense. You might find success in some of the things that you do. But you won't find the ultimate success without love. There is failure without love. And that's anything in our life. But I want to talk about failure outside of our marriage. I believe that there is failure of love inside of our marriage. I believe there's a failure because people don't understand love. I think love is very commonly misunderstood in our world today. You just go to definitions. We're definition people. You go to, to sources like Webster's. That's, I mean, that's a pretty common place to go. And you look at the way that he defines love. Strong affection arising out of kinship or personal ties. Attraction based on sexual desire. Affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interest. He's talking about affection and about feelings and about desires and, and things of that nature. That's what a lot of people think when they think of love. 
It's about how I feel. Let, let's go back to that wonderful place of polling in Yahoo and see what people said there. You know because you have been told by your significant other that your deep feelings are returned in kind. That's how I know I'm in love. Other people say I know I'm in love because the object of your affection makes you feel special and good about yourself. Nothing makes you feel as serene as when you're with your partner, you're together. So many people's idea about love is how I feel. How I feel about you, how you feel about me, the way that you make me feel. I mean, there's a lot of selfishness involved in these statements here. It's about me. It's about me, the way that you make me feel. What well, must be love because, you know, I do for you, and you make me feel real good because of what you do. I'll tell you, feelings are dangerous. <laughs> not all feelings are bad. I'm not saying that. Some feelings are great. Obviously, what these folks are experiencing is very good emotion. Does that mean that's what love is? We could spend all evening, maybe even longer, talking about following our heart and how dangerous that could be. We, we had a prophet who said the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who could know it? There are times our emotions trick us. And you know one of the things that we do to emotions? We can turn them off. Our feelings can be destroyed over time. And love is not something that can just be turned on and off. I believe when you look at the idea of biblical love, you find something, you find an idea or a thing that is something that you do, something you have control over, something that doesn't have to be whimsical depending upon the day. It's something that you choose to do. Love is a decision that you make. It's an action. In 1 John 3 and 18 about love, he says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed or in truth. There's so many times that we can say, I love you and mean it in vain or emptily. Yeah, I, I remember that as a kid, as a boy at, in, my, in my first relationships, the things that felt important. I can't tell you how many times I said I love you to somebody and, and I thought that I meant it and I heard it in return. It's very common. That's what you say because that's what you think you're supposed to say. And I'll tell you, until studying a little deeper and getting some more direction, until meeting the, the woman become my wife, I didn't understand what it was. I got to watch what it was. I'll tell you that. That was a blessing. I got to see love by so many people in the church, even outside of marriage. Uh, people who would invest in my life. I, I got to watch other people treat others with love and inside of their marriage. And I saw that it wasn't something that you just say, but it's something that you do. It's that way in our relationship with God. It can't be just about saying, I love you. Think about how many people say that, well, I love God. I love Jesus. Well, what does that mean? What does it really mean to love God? First John 5 and 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. It's not good enough to just say, I love God. To really love him, we've got to show him. Now, it's not about proving your love to God to me or to anybody else, but to God. And the way that you do that is you show him. You show him by your actions. You show him by the investment of your life. You show him by your reasonable sacrifice that he's called you to give. And you show him that you're willing to do it with a happy heart. Love is not something that you can do dragging your feet all the way. Even though I've done it. You know, sometimes as a kid you'll do that. Parents tell you to do something. You didn't really want to do it. Rusty was showing me a video the other day of what if we did everything angrily. 
You know, and I, I, one of my favorite part of that is the dude who was taking the trash out. And this grown man walks out there and he flips the lid open on the trash can and he takes the trash and he slams it down in there and walks off calmly. And sometimes as kids, that's what we do. And, and that's not what love can be. Love is something that we consistently do with a happy heart. That's, that's not always as easy done as it is said. It's something where we have to make sure we invest in that. Jesus, the ultimate example of that. I don't know if you ever get tired of reading Ephesians 5 and 25. This probably won't be the last time we talk about it tonight either. Ephesians 5, 25, he said, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for that. I mean, it's an action word. Love is that action word, like gave is the action word. It's about this sacrifice that you make for someone else, do something else, just like it is for God. And inside of our home, Love isn't something you can just say, it's something you have to do. Love is not something that you fall in and out of love, or something that you fall in and out of, it's something you decide to do every day, something you decide to give every day, something you decide to show every day. That's what love is. And as we examine our love inside of our home as a husband or as a wife, examine what do you do, and with what attitude do you do it? I'll tell you that so many people think of love as something that is given whenever that you give, if it's already given in return. And I don't believe that love biblically is something that is only given because it's shown to us. There's a lot of principles that speak to that. We'll just read about Romans 5 and verse 8, probably one we can relate to the most if you've embraced the gospel. He says, but God commends his love towards us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Whenever Christ died for the world, he didn't die for a bunch of saints. A bunch of people who are already walking right and talking right and living right and, and being merciful and loving and kind. What he died for is people who weren't his. People who were not a people. People who were sinning. People who would put him on a cross. It wasn't about a reciprocation of love to people who were already doing good for him. It was about being an example of love and showing service before service was given. Love is not about reciprocation. I hear, I hear couples say so many times, well, if he would just do this, then I would... No, no. Or if she would just stop doing that... No, 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 it's not that either. It's what I will do. It's what I will give. And you may or may not give, but it's about what I will give. That's love. You have control over the way that you love. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Feelings will come and go. Feelings will wear at your resolve to love. Feelings will tear at your heart to, to keep you motivated to love. But, but love is something you continue to do even if it's not shown to you. Now, what I don't think that means, even though love is not about reciprocation or doing only because we've seen it given to us, I don't believe that that means that love can't cause reciprocation. Because I believe love can cause reciprocation. And, and that's the example we see in Jesus. In 1 John 4, 19, very simply put, he said, we love him because he first loved us. Now, Jesus didn't give love because we were given to him, but he certainly laid down a pattern that, look, we can trust him. Look at all that he was willing to give. We can put our confidence in him. We place our faith in him and his word, and we're willing to submit to him. Why? Because he showed that love first. Inside of marriage, the lack of reciprocation of love sometimes can be a very difficult thing. And as we enter in, into talking in 1 Corinthians 13, that's one of the first things that comes to my mind as he talks about what love is and what it isn't. 
Sometimes love may not be reciprocated. And, and if love isn't being reciprocated consistently or as often or, or at all like it ought to be, I really think about the first thing on the list here, that charity or love suffers long and it is kind. We don't use the terms like suffereth long anymore. We don't use long suffering as often. Uh, when I think about suffereth long, more simply put, it's you might have to suffer for a long time. I hope you're not in a relationship like that. I hope you're not in a relationship where you feel like you've had to suffer for a long time. But maybe you are. You know, one of the hardest things to do is to sit down to talk to someone and, and you can tell that they're beaten down and, and they're weary and, and, and they want a better relationship and they're tired and they say, I just don't know what to do to make, to make it easier for them to want to do good for me. You know, the answer, the only answer you can give is you can't make them do anything, but you can do this. You know, there's a difference in suffering for a long time and suffering for a long time and being kind. There's a difference in being long-suffering and patient and being, uh, or being long-suffering and just holding your tongue and, and being long-suffering and being kind. And, and I think that's the hardest thing to do. We have sayings like, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And I, I, I believe as you look at this passage and the way we can relate it to love, it doesn't matter what someone else is doing to you. It might be hard. It might be wearing on your resolve to give and to give. You might feel like you're spending and being spent all the day long, day in and day out. But you show them love and you show it with kindness. Don't return hatefulness for hatefulness. Don't, don't give up and say, well, I guess I'm done. Show love. Show it with kindness. You know, that's one of the things that Jesus did. Jesus, as he offered that love and that kindness to his people, they rejected it oftentimes. I like the way he talked about the people he would die for in Luke 13 and 34. As he looks out amongst these people, he looks out at not friends. But he says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets, and son of some that are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together as a hen doth their brood under her wings, and you would not. Sometimes you might have to suffer for a while. Sometimes you may have to be patient for a lot longer than you would like to. But do it with kindness. Jesus came to these people who were plotting to kill him, plotting to overthrow him from the beginning. I mean, before he could even get into the earth, there was kings looking to kill him. They had to flee for his life when he was a baby. They had to flee for life several other times. And towards the end, even friends were betraying him. And as he suffered long with the people that he wanted to benefit, the people he wanted to do good for, the people he wanted to show love to, he just did it with kindness the whole time. And if you want a valuable tool in marriage, even if your spouse, maybe that's just a bad day. Maybe it's not that you suffered for a long time, but maybe it's just a bad day. Be long-suffering with them and treat them with kindness. So many have come to Christ because of the way he could show that. Inside of our marriage and showing love, he says that we shouldn't envy. I, I hear a lot of, of interesting ideas about what this passage could be. A lot of times as people translate this, the idea is to not be jealous. This is one of the first passages I hear people go to... Uh, well, I don't know, maybe you've heard this before. I feel like it's such a high school concept, and you'll see what I mean in a minute. You know, you're in high school, and, and you have your little girlfriend, your little boyfriend. I remember so many times that, uh, that, that one of you would say, uh, well, I shouldn't have to give up all my friends of the other gender just because we're going out. And, 
They'd want to spend a lot of time with someone else. Or you shouldn't be jealous of me for all the other friends that I keep uh, of the opposite sex. And, and uh, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. In fact, I don't even know if that's the right kind of question. If you have a spouse who is sitting there saying you shouldn't be, uh, that, that you shouldn't have a problem with me being risky with our relationship, I think that they're looking at all in the wrong way. You remember that marriage is all about personal responsibility. You want to talk on that subject. Let's talk about just making sure that we don't throw a stumbling block of jealousy in front of somebody in the first place. Proverbs 31.11 says the heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need to spoil. I think this can come to play here. Instead of just sitting there throwing stumbling blocks in front of your maid and, and spending time with so many other people that you know is going to drive them nuts and and like I said, throw a stumbling block in from there and cause them to sin. Create trust. Create a bond. Relationships, we talked about how they have to change to a degree in the leaving and cleaving process. Create trust. That's not what that passage is talking about when he says envy it not. I'll tell you what it is talking about. It's talking about envying one another. It's talking about it a competitive spirit. We saw that a lot of different times in the scriptures. Look at the competitive spirit of the Jews here in Acts 13. said the Jews saw the multitudes and they were filled with envy and they spake against these things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Uh, these Jews, you remember that they loved the chief seats. They loved to be called rabbi, rabbi, like we talked about last night. They saw these men out here preaching and having success and teaching about God. They didn't care nothing about God. They cared about themselves. And they were upset with it. And they were filled with this jealousy and envy. Well, we're not getting attention like that. You know what they wanted to do? Just like what they wanted to do to Jesus. Let's kill him. Let's stone him. Let's behead him. Let's do all these different things. Imprison him. I don't know. Maybe you've never wanted to, to do anything to that degree to your spouse. I hope. But I watch competition destroy marriages. Who has to get the last word in? Who always has to be right. Who has to be the one that said, I told you so. And you watch people bicker and argue because it's about who is right and who is wrong and who did this best and who didn't do this as well and, and who messed this up and who lost whatever they lost and all. I mean, it could go on and on and on. Maybe even it's about envying the good things that happen in our spouse's life. I watched that happen. Something good happens to them and they're jealous about it and they tear it down instead of rejoicing with them when they can rejoice. Jealousy and envy will destroy your marriage. It's not about competing. You're one. And I would say if you're one, you've won. It's the best there is. There's nothing to compete about. Everything that happens for your spouse, it's the good thing for, your too, for you too. And we shouldn't have a competitive spirit. Competition just tears down. I've done a lot of things that I really regret out of a competitive spirit. And I think maybe if I say competitive spirit, it probably, it probably is just taming it a little bit what it really was. But I probably ought to move on or I'll talk about what a big baby I could be sometimes. Don't, don't be competitive with your spouse. Rejoice when they have a reason to rejoice. Rejoice for them. Rejoice with them. And even talk about how others, talk them up and let others rejoice with them. Love isn't about competition. Love doesn't self-promote, and that's what competition leads to is self-promotion. Charity vaunteth not itself, and it is not puffed up. It, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think we always think about lifting ourselves up over somebody. Sometimes just in general conversation, 
someone's talking about one thing and I think, oh, I have something to say on this subject too and I have a story so I tell my story. So then they tell their story and I tell my story and, and back and forth and I'm just relating in the conversation, right? Uh, sometimes, sometimes maybe just let somebody else talk, right, I guess? Let someone else do some talking. I guess that's one of the least ways that we think about puffing ourselves up. I think a lot of times when we, we consider being puffed up, we think about somebody who's just simply braggadocious. Somebody who loves to talk about some me. Toby Keith's in Oklahoma, isn't he? No. <laughs> he talked about, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I. And that's a problem. That's not just a problem inside of marriage. That's a problem in general. But it's definitely a problem in marriage. In Proverbs 27 and 2, he said, Let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. You know, one of the sad things that I see is people cutting one another down. And that's that competitive spirit. It's about the pride. And, and, and I listen to people. It's the sitcom family conversations. That's what it is. And you know how people talk about the sitcom dad and they portray him as this blundering fool. And they talk about the women, They're, she wouldn't know north from south, or he's not the sharpest stick in the woods, or, or any number of these things. Obviously, those are stereotypes, but they're comments that we hear. But these little barbs that we throw each other in that competitive spirit, and, and the end result of that, whether we realize in our heart or not, is about me lifting me up and me keeping you down. But you know what? If you want praise, let somebody else do it. And, and I would say more than this. It's not about you being praised, but you turn this around, and how about instead of praising yourself and lifting yourself up, be the one who praises your spouse. Instead of being the one that creates the awkward moment in public where you have your little argument and you each put each other in your place, how about find the great things about each other and praise them? Think about what we have. If you have a spiritual mate, a spiritual partner, consider what you have. God said that a good and virtuous woman, is a, is a, her price is far above rubies. He said, who can find that? And you know, if, when you say who can find that, he's saying it's a rarity. It's so valuable and priceless. And whenever we have something rare or valuable, what do we want to do? We want to tell somebody about it. And when's the last time you did that for your spouse? And you told somebody else about my wife or you told somebody else about my husband? You know, the people who are closely knit, they, they, they relish those things in the other, the other one and they value them. I love some of the other passages in Proverbs 31. He said, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Very similarly, it said in verse 28 about uh, uh, the next couple of verses, verse 28 said, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also when he praises her. Proverbs 31, 31, he said, give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. So you have a couple of different ideas, the same idea running here about these people being well-known about having good reputations they're talented they're good they're virtuous they're valuable all of these things and you know what they do they promote one another they promote one another's reputation don't sit there husbands and run down mama and joke about her and tease her in front of the kids in a way that's inappropriate and teach your kids to mock mama and teach your kids it's okay to be little mama and wives don't do that about daddy either Lead your children into praising other people and building them up instead of tearing them down. Husbands lead in that. Lead whenever it comes in when you're out in the community. I mean, look, your husband's not perfect. Your wife's not perfect. I know that because no human's perfect. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to have faults, and you're going to know probably every one of them. 
because you're going to spend most of your time around them. But instead of going around to everyone and letting them know every time they've messed up or they told a silly, why don't you build their reputation? Talk about the things where they're successful. Talk about the things that you were proud of. Talk about the things that were meaningful. And I, I value that. I, some of the older couples that, that I, I've looked to in, in my marriage, these Titus II couples, I, I watch the way that they take care of one another. And I watch the way that they talk about each other with reverence and respect. And that's inspiring. It inspires people to do better in their own marriages. And it inspires your spouse to do better in that marriage too. Not just feel bad about who they are. Not feel embarrassed every time they're kind of a conversation. Not worried that what you're going to tell on somebody next. It's not about running the other person down. It's about building them up. Consider the treasure that God has given you and your mate. And let your lips be the ones that praise them. In 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 5, he said that love does not behave itself unseemly or it's, it's not unbecoming. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14, he said, These things I write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Now pay attention to this part real quick. This personally said, if I tarry long. That means if he preaches for a real long time. So <laughs> if I preach for a real long time, so it's that thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar of the ground of truth. Now, anyways, that's really what he was saying. I don't try to preach long, by the way. I don't have as much good to say as what he does. But he said, look, I've got a lot of things to say because there is a way that the church ought to behave. And I think that's one of the things that we need to understand both as the church and from the church standpoint to be a member, being a lighthouse on a hill, and also from a marriage standpoint. You want to influence in society in a positive way? You want to influence your friends and your peers around you in a positive way? Then you be this pillar, this rock, this resolute, this resolute relationship that shows everybody else around you how you ought to behave in a marriage. Of all the relationships that are going off the rails, of all the people who are in all the domestic disputes and, and, and in the, all of the competition that goes along in marriage and all the dysfunction, be the one that stands out, not so you can say we're so great inside of our marriage, but so that other people can go, my goodness, they actually like each other. How do you do that? There are people who think that way. Oh, my goodness, what, you have such a good relationship. How do you do that? How did it get to this point? And they'll want to know. That's what you can be in your relationship. You know, but we can act inside of our relationship that is in a way that we ought not to behave. We went over this verse a little bit. Colossians 3 last night. He said, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. That word fit there means right. It means that it is becoming. You want to act becoming? Fill your role. You know what's unbecoming? What isn't fit? What isn't right? Is when a man is so passive, he won't lead us home. When a man will make excuses and he'll say, well, I'm just, I'm just a laid back fella. I'll tell you, there's a lot of things in life where we're called to, by God to be something other than what we are naturally. And leading our home is one of those things. You might say that, well, I'm a little more outgoing than other people. And so it might be a little harder for you to submit, for me to submit. Well, you know what? It's right. For you to go against your own nature a little bit. To be because God has called you to be. It's fit. It's becoming. Whenever we fill our roles in an appropriate way. 
We need to appropriately fill our role. Why? Because not just because the world is watching, but God is watching. And he's saying you're doing what is right or you're doing what not is right. There's probably a lot of different things you could have done with that passage. This is just where my mind went. Appropriately, appropriately fill your role. One of the things about love, it's not selfish and it doesn't seek her own. And it's very clearly seen again in the relationship of Jesus. In Ephesians 5, 28, it said, So not men to love their own wives or love their wives as their own body. He that loves his wife loves himself for no man yet ever yet hates his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. Even as the Lord, the church in verse 31, he said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and will be joined his wife and they shall be one flesh. The idea of being unselfish is something we've covered extensively this week. Thank you, Rusty. <clears throat> Were you getting tired of hearing that raspiness? Mm -hmm. I was. Thank you. <clears throat> I appreciate it. Whenever we decide to enter into our relationship, I don't know, sometimes I guess I end up talking about it a lot like it's just a lot of work. It's just a lot of work. You've got to put a lot of work into it. And we talk about the work really beginning when you get married. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I'm telling you, marriage is great. The last 12, 12 years and a couple months that I've been married, I mean, they've been awesome. That doesn't mean that there weren't some hardships along the way. That doesn't mean there weren't mistakes made on both sides. But the unselfishness that has been shown to me, I, I'm just telling you, nothing is better than that. And nothing is better than a king who will lay down his life for you and give everything that he has for you. That, that lack of selfishness speaks to you. Whenever someone is so willing to give consistently in their life, it humbles you. It, it makes you want to respond. Just the very simple act of giving a gift. If someone gives you a gift, what do you want to do in return? I mean, hopefully you say thank you. <laughs> That's just common courtesy. But you kind of feel like, man, I didn't get you nothing. You kind of want to do something for them, you know. That's kind of a natural impulse of, of a kind person. And whenever Jesus gave everything for us, I mean, it ought to make us want to do the same thing for him. But inside of your marriage, if, if you want to promote the best in somebody and not that we're doing our alms so that we can also receive, but just be selfless. Try being selfless. Instead of looking for all the things that you want and all the things that you need, try to look to see what they want and need. To the husbands and to the wives both, fill their needs. So many times in counseling sessions, people come to the table. I was talking with some folks about this the other night. I feel like a lot of times they come, they wait, they wait maybe until it's too late in some of these relationships. And so often what people do is they come to the table and they say, well, here's what I want. Here's what I want. I want her to do this and I want her to stop doing that. And I want him to do this, and I want her to stop doing that. And I'll tell you, it's a vicious cycle. If all you can think about is what you want out of the other person, you're spending so much time thinking about what they won't do and what they haven't done and what they can't do and what they didn't do 20 years ago that you forget about what you ought to do today. And a selfless person thinks, what can I do today? Wake up. Wake up in the morning and... And have this desire, I would say, wake up and challenge yourself each day. How much better would I be at my role? How much better would you be at your role, husbands, if you woke up each morning and maybe you read through this passage and you thought, in what way can I be unselfish today? 
lay out some goals maybe. As wives, in your role, if you woke up in the morning and you read through some of these verses and, and you, read, you read about your role and you thought, how can I be unselfish today? How much easier would it be through that day? How much more efficient would we be at promoting love and respect and kindness in one another? Wake up on a mission in your home. Wake up selfless. Wake up with goals to give something better to someone else today than what you're willing to give to yourself. Continuing, he says that love is not easily provoked, and this is where I wish I was wearing my steel-toe boots tonight because I'll just be honest, sometimes I'm just a little bit too easily provoked. You know, one of the craziest things I found out is that I am too often so much more patient with the person who cuts in front of me in line at the grocery store than I am with my own wife. Now, we learn the buttons to push through the years, don't we? If we're honest, we know the buttons. And sadly, we push those buttons sometimes in jest, sometimes in fun, sometimes in too often because we just get lack. We just get slack. There's another word for that. We're just going to use slack. We don't work hard enough at making sure that we, we're diligent to, to not push buttons. And then over time, we just develop a bigger and bigger hair trigger. And we don't hold back. I mean, maybe for a while in our marriage, we, we hold back and we just, we're a little more patient. We're a little patient than we used to be. And then we just lose some of that patience through it. I, I think that we really need to work on this. You know, when he's talking about not being angry against the word and being, being soon mad or easily provoked in James 1, he said this. He said, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear Slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. One of the things that I really thought about in this verse going through this study is just how easy it is to kill communication with a quick trigger. You think about that. Husbands, you think about it. Whenever your wife talks to you about how she feels, sometimes she might say something that is about how she is feeling and about a deficiency that she has because of something you're doing or you're not doing. And if we react on a hair trigger and we're angry, you know what it does? It kills a little bit of communication right there. And then the next time they bring it up and they do it again and you snap right back, you know what it does? It makes them a little bit more wary before they bring the problem to you again. And maybe they're suffering. Maybe they're trying to be long-suffering and patient. Maybe they're trying to do it with kindness. But every time we react in haste and in anger, you know what we're not doing? We're not working the righteousness of God. And we're not helping ourselves out. We're killing communication because someone might be a little bit more scared to talk to us. Wives, you could do the same thing. Anytime that we react hastily and out of anger, we might be killing a part of our relationship. Love says, I'm going to take a moment, I'm going to stop. And maybe that's what you got to do. I don't personally recommend leaving the house and going on walks and driving away. And, you know, that gives at least, you may be working on it, but it might give another person more reason to stew and be angry. But, you know what, take a moment and stop. Maybe take a moment and pray, Right? That's, that's what I really think is a good thing to do. If, if you're angry, if you're mad, maybe if you're frustrated, maybe if you're hurt in a conversation or situation, one of you just stop and say, can we pray? I mean, what Christian in the right mind is asked to pray and says, no, I'm not going to do it. We might have some other problems there if we're going to do that. Stop and pray. Hit the reset button. 
Work the righteousness of God for his sake, for your sake, for your spouse's sake. And you know what? We're going to develop some, some deeper relationships because volatility is destructive. Volatility is destructive not just to us, but everyone else who sees it. Our children are watching you. You want to know why your children could be angry and explosive? It's because there's a little lust in them like in you. And when they see destructive and angry tempers and emotions and, and people fly off the handle, they're practicing that. It might be feeding some predisposition that's already in them. Volatility is destructive in so many ways. Don't kill your relationship because you have a quick trigger. Be patient. Be kind. And if you need help with that, get help with that. He says that love thinks no evil. Sarcasm is, I don't know, it's a pretty big part of our society. I didn't realize how much some societies don't use sarcasm. Uh, you go over to India, you've got to be careful. Use sarcasm and they have no idea what you're doing with that. Everyone else is laughing and they're going, I don't know what's going on. We use sarcasm a lot. We depend on it almost for our daily interactions with people. And there's a lot of fun in sarcasm, so don't get me wrong. But sarcasm was one of those things that comes back to bite us sometimes. It comes back to bite us inside of a relationship. Sarcasm is one of those things that you start reading into things because some people are sarcastic to be funny and fun. And sometimes, depending on our mood, somebody might just be saying something normal and we think it's sarcastic and we think it has barbs behind it, so to speak. For instance, the word okay <laughs> or the word fine. You know, fine means everything's good, right? You know, sometimes when I say fine, I don't mean fine. Sometimes when I say fine, I mean that's fine. Whatever you want to do. Ellen might ask me something and I say fine and I'm fed up. You know, sometimes though she'll tell me fine and I go, what's that supposed to mean? And she'll say, I, I just said it's fine. I mean, that means it's good and I, and I like it and that's all right. You see what I did there? I assigned motive to what she said. Why? Because sarcasm and a bad attitude. You know, the Bible labels this as evil surmising or things like it. In Timothy 6 and 4, there's a, a, a whole list here of things that he says he doesn't want in our lives, and one of them is evil surmisings, and that's like thinking the worst. And I'll tell you, this is so destructive in the home. It's just thinking the worst with our spouse. Someone else may say fine, and we go, they said it's fine, it's good. And our, our spouse might come right in after that, say it's fine, and, and we might go, what did we do here? What's wrong? What do you not like about this? And, and that's part of it. I mean, we have to make sure that we're... That we're not reading into everything that everyone says. And, and you watch people go in this spiraling vortex of awful because they read into everything that is done, into everything that's said. Someone walks in the room and they yawn and they think that they're sighing at them. Why'd you sigh like that? Oh, I didn't sigh. Yeah, you did. I heard you make a big breathing noise. What are you upset about? I was just yawning. I'm telling you, fights start out of some of the silliest things. Because we just think the worst. And he said, love doesn't think the worst. It doesn't assign motive like that. I'll tell you, instead of just thinking the worst, even if the worst is missed, worst is meant. Maybe think the best. Ellen does that to me and it kills me. Because <laughs> I'll mean the worst sometimes. I'll say, fine. And she'll go, oh, thank you, honey. And I'll go, you know. She's nice to me, you know, and it hurts because, you know, you're a flea bag for acting like you ought not to and being rude and sarcastic in a mean way. I'll tell you, kill them with kindness, right? 
And that's one of the things that you could do. Maybe to turn this cycle of, of horrible, for lack of a better term, around, be the one who doesn't assign motives all the time. But even if someone does mean something negative, just take it as the best. Say something nice in return. I mean, there are times for confrontation and working our problems out, but there might be these times where we can just stop this process in its tracks by countering with something kind and loving and, loving and long-suffering, right? Just stop thinking the worst, and that may be one of the most simple things that we can do to have a healthy relationship. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but instead it rejoices in truth. If you love me, you'll accept me the way that I am. If you love me, you won't try to change me. If you love me, you'll embrace all of my faults along with it. That's some of the things that we hear a lot when we're talking about love and relationships. Don't get me wrong, there are concepts in the scripture about love covering a multitude of sins, and that's talking about being long-suffering with people, not being petty with people, letting some things go when you can let it go. But I'll tell you that love is not one of those things that just rejoices whenever someone else we're in a relationship with is living in sin or doing something wrong. This is one of the things that destroy. I think this is one of the ways that we can turn our relationship carnal when we don't have the relationship, a loving relationship, where we can hold one another accountable as a husband and wife. You hear the saying that somebody will take it from you, but they won't take it from me? Uh, I mean, some people have different influence. I don't think that our marriage relationship ought to be that way. I, we ought to be able to these people in this relationship where we can build one another up spiritually, right? Where we can we, be this person who can confront in a loving way, that we can build one another up stronger, that we can make someone to be a spiritual person. Ephesians 25, 27 says that's what Jesus was talking about. That's what Jesus was all about. We've talked about this over and over. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but think about what he was doing when he gave himself for the church. It was about sanctification. It was about cleansing with the wash of the water of the word. It was about presenting his bride or that church, a glorious church, not something that was having spots all over it. He didn't come to church with salsa on his shirt. It doesn't have wrinkles or any such thing, but it was holy and it was blemishless. You know, this is a this is a spouse who said, I don't want you to have all these sin blots on your life. And so what I'm going to do is promote the best in you. And so whenever you have a fault or a flaw, I'm going to help you. I'm not going to harass you. I'm not going to belittle you. I'm not going to beat you over the head. I'm going to help you. And that's what a spouse is about, and specifically as he talks to the husbands here. But, but wives, we talked about 1 Peter 3, about how you can even be an influence in that way as well. Uh, look, you have to be able to help one another. I, I don't care. You know, a husband shouldn't have to be scared to talk to his wife about modesty. But you know what? We are sometimes. Love says that I can talk about it. Wives shouldn't have to be, up, be scared to come and talk to us as husbands about the way that we're talking. Maybe a little too pridefully about the glory days. Maybe that seems silly. But we shouldn't have to be scared to talk to one another about the spiritual things in life. Because we ought to look at one another and say, you know what, I want to get you to heaven. And I appreciate that you want to get me to heaven. And that together in a loving fashion, we can embrace the idea of Galatians 6 and 1, I guess, you know. When you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you which your spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering that own self lest I also be tempted. 
Why can't we do that in our own homes, in our own marriages, with our own spouse? Isn't that the perfect place to exercise that passage? A place where in love and in meekness and in patience we can help one another with our flaws? Love doesn't accept sin, but it promotes spirituality. It promotes righteousness. It brings the best out in the other person. Love bears all things. It's, it's not always sunshine and Skittles. It's not always vacations and Facebook-worthy picture days. Life comes with burdens to bear. Life comes with responsibilities to bear. But you know what? Love will bear all those things. Love doesn't fold under a pressure, men, whenever there is a decision to be made that can impact the family spiritually. You make that decision. Love bears those burdens. Love bears the burdens of the homes whenever it's difficult because it isn't easy raising kids. And we step up and we raise our children and we break the cycles that go bad in our life whenever we're having hard times in our marriage. Love bears those things. Without love, we can't bear them. That's why people all the time say, I'm done and I'm out. They don't bear them. The love is gone, right? The love has not been shown. Love believes all things. And I think you need to believe in the words that we read in the scriptures that say that marriage can be good and marriage can be wonderful and marriage can be a blessing, not only to those in it, but all those around it. Believe in that and believe that the techniques he teaches us and shows us with his own actions, our Savior can give us a better home and a better marriage and a better life in our uh, love will help us with that. Love hopes all things. I'll tell you, maybe you're in a situation that isn't ideal tonight. Hope for the best. Work for the best. Uh, that's what we have in this life as Christians. It's hope, isn't it? When our faith becomes sight, that's when hope is fulfilled. And so we work right now. And in your marriage, if it's going, if it's tough right now, just hope. If it's not tough right now, still hope. Hope for good things for the future for your spouse. Hope for closer relationships because no matter how close you are, there's somewhere we can be working, some area we can be doing better. Love endures all things. So many marriages fail because the love is gone. Love will endure. I believe it's true. Don't you? If I as an individual am willing to bring love to my marriage, or you as an individual, the individual willing to bring love to your marriage and your spouse is too, you'll make it through anything. COVID ain't going to kill you. 35%. That's the number, the best I can tell that divorces are up right now during COVID. 35% during this time. Where there is no love, there is no endurance. Hardships. Problems at church, problems in the life, illnesses, money problems. I don't care what it is. If you've got love, righteous, spiritual, godly, biblical love, you'll endure all things because love never fails. There's going to be some other things in life that will fail and have failed, but love won't fail. You know what fails? We fail love. We fail to be loving. Examine your heart this evening. Examine your actions this evening. And if you failed to love your spouse a little bit, you ought to. We want to help you with that. There are Titus 2 men and women in this building today. And they'll walk with you and they'll talk with you and they'll go through the scriptures with you. They'll be an example to you. Whatever it is you need. 
Jesus provides it through your brethren and through his word. If you have a spiritual need of the church tonight, if you're just in need of some love and care tonight, need the prayer of a church for encouragement, whatever it is, have a seat on this front pew while we stand and sing this last song.